Hello, hello, hello everyone, and welcome to Codebreaker. Before we get to the meat and potatoes of today's episode, I want to start off with a little tip of the cap to one NFL team's front office. But before I reveal that team, think about Dynasty League strategy. Us Dynasty managers live by a set of unwritten rules that lead to success. For example, hold on to your future rookie picks and use them like currency. When the time is right, flip those draft picks and either turn them into higher draft picks to go get future superstars like a Travis Etienne or Jamar Chase or trade back and acquire future firsts that will only grow in value over the course of the next season. Another unwritten rule, don't overpay for non-essential roster spots. Yes, we'd all like to have a solid wide receiver core for our teams, but guys like DJ Chark and Cooper Cup are only marginally more valuable and sometimes even less valuable in any given year than a Marvin Jones or a Jarvis Landry. Don't overpay for a wide receiver two type in Dynasty because those guys grow on trees. If you're going to take time and effort to put a godfather offer together, it better be a buy high on a young stud like a Cam Akers or a Jonathan Taylor or an A.J. Brown. You see, us savvy Dynasty managers, we understand how to value different players in different positions based on league size, league format, positional scarcity, etc. You know who doesn't understand relative positional value and the importance of draft picks? Most NFL franchises. Most NFL franchises are horrible at this. Take the Houston Texans, who now closely resemble that one team in every dynasty league that finished in last place in 2020, yet somehow still have zero valuable 2021 draft picks to replenish their team. We can all think of that dynasty league where there is one true bottom feeder that will likely wither away year after year until it's orphaned and finds a particularly charitable owner. It's not just the Houston Texans. Though they clearly don't understand the value of draft picks like savvy dynasty managers do. We see it happen with the New York Jets year after year, the Chicago Bears, the Raiders used back-to-back first-round picks on Josh Jacobs and Henry Ruggs. Think about positional scarcity. The Raiders could have grabbed a franchise left tackle in Tristan Wirfs, but instead they grabbed a situational field stretcher in Henry Ruggs when they could have had Darnell Mooney 161 picks later in the draft. That's like a dynasty manager grabbing Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields in a one-quarterback league before a Najee Harris. You just can't do that. The New York Giants grabbed a running back with the second overall pick in the 2018 draft instead of trading back. Sure enough, they find themselves now in a weak division, and it's a team that's on the verge of being competitive, and their biggest flaw? A terrible O-line. You know who did trade back, though, when they had a high pick that they didn't quote-unquote need? The Miami Dolphins. The Dolphins had the number three pick in the 2021 draft. And for all intents and purposes, didn't need it. They keep getting a wide receiver mocked to them. And all signals point 
to Tua Tagovailoa as their 2021 starter at quarterback. That number three pick in the 2021 draft means less to the Dolphins than it does to a team more hungry for a new quarterback. Insert the San Francisco 49ers, who have masqueraded as satisfied with Jimmy Garoppolo for a while now, and finally seem ready to give Kyle Shanahan a more talented quarterback to work with. Having found a worthy trade suitor desperate for a quarterback upgrade, the Dolphins traded the number three pick in the 2021 draft to the San Francisco 49ers in exchange for the number 12 pick in the 2021 draft. But that's obviously not all. For moving back nine slots, count them, nine slots. The 49ers also sent Miami a 2022 first round pick and a 2022 third round pick. Sounds a little lopsided, right? San Francisco moves up nine slots and sends away a 2022 first and a 2022 third in the process. Oh, my bad. San Francisco also sent Miami their 2023 first rounder as well. To review, Miami moves back from the number three pick in the draft, which they didn't really need, to the number 12 pick and gained a future first rounder in both 2022 and 2023, as well as a third rounder next year as well. Whoever Miami was eyeing at number three, they realized probably wouldn't be there at number 12. So immediately after the trade with San Francisco, the Dolphins traded for the number six pick in the draft belonging to Philly. The Eagles sent Miami pick number six and a fifth rounder in exchange for pick number 12, a fourth rounder, and the 2022 first rounder they'd recently acquired from San Francisco. When the dust had settled, Miami traded back from the number three pick to the number six pick, knowing they could still get their guy, and they pocketed San Francisco's 2023 first rounder in the process. Just imagine if the New York Giants had orchestrated something like this in 2018, knowing you don't really need to use the number two pick in the draft on a running back. Imagine if the Raiders understood positional scarcity and had used the number 12 overall pick in the draft to grab a cornerstone offensive lineman, slot him in at left tackle the next half decade, a Tristan Wirfs. You know what I think? I believe that too many NFL GMs would benefit from playing in dynasty leagues and learning about positional scarcity and how to properly use draft picks like currency. Bravo, Miami. Bravo. Back to the meat and potatoes of this episode. I have a guest today, Dave Kluge, of both football guys and fantasy pros. And we'll be bringing you an entirely new format of podcast. Usually, guest spots are more of an interview type, where the show sheet is conversation topics. But today you'll be hearing the first ever running back interrogation, a brand new format. Dave was gracious enough to do some homework before this episode, so he'll be defending Austin Eckler, a player he is much higher on than consensus for 2021. I'll be coming at him with common issues noted in Eckler's 2021 profile, and Dave will be justifying his enthusiasm for Eckler. Conversely, I'm well above consensus on DeAndre Swift, so Dave will be throwing 
some common concerns about Swift's 2021 outlook at me, and I'll be defending Swift using a little research of my own. This new format will in no way replace the player deep dives I've performed on guys like Antonio Gibson, LaVisca Chenault, and the recent DJ Moore versus Calvin Ridley debate from a couple weeks ago. But variety can be a good thing, and I believe this most definitely applies to today's interrogation episode. After listening, if you want to keep up with what I'm working on each day, you can follow me on Twitter at jlarkytweets, J-L-A-R-K-Y tweets. Now, if you're interested in learning to code in the language R, as in the letter R like a pirate, if you're interested in being able to do the work that I do and learning to code in R for analytics, check out thatrcodingsite.com. One more time, thatrcodingsite.com. I will personally teach you how to code in R for analytics in 6 to 12 weeks using only football data sets. And I guarantee it will be the most fun way you can possibly learn to code for analytics, a valuable skill in today's job marketplace. And again, you can find me on Twitter at jlarkytweets, J-L-A-R-K-Y tweets. Without further ado, give me 10 seconds to get my man Dave on the line and get those heads bouncing in anticipation. My guest today is Dave Kluge, D-A-V-E-K-L-U-G-E underscore F-F on Twitter. Dave, you're a new staff writer at Football Guys, a correspondent for Fantasy Pros, a worshiper of drafting running backs early like I am, and so much more. Welcome to Codebreaker. How are you doing this afternoon? And let me know, did I miss anything in your football resume? Well, the one thing I'd like to add to my football resume is the Friday show that I do with uh, my co-host, Steffi Smalls. We actually just finished airing a show about an hour ago with Michael F. Florio from the NFL Network. I've also got a special one-off show that we're doing this Tuesday with Matthew Barry. Uh, But no, you you covered just about all of it. Football guys and fantasy pros are the main places you can find my written content. And uh, thanks a lot for having me on, Josh. I'm glad that we are finally able to link up on a show together. Yeah, I feel like this was... This was a few weeks in the process. I mean, we we definitely spent, a, there was a lot of back and forth communication. And I mentioned this in the intro, but hats off to Dave. He put in a lot of work for this podcast. I know that not every podcast host is like, hey, would you like to come on my podcast? I have this new idea for you. Here's a lot of work. Now, why don't you research? Oh, you really like Austin Eckler? Love to hear it. Okay, now why don't you do some research for me on this player for my podcast? So hats off to Dave. Great guy. Thank you for that. Yeah. And the nice thing is I've, I've already done a lot of research on Austin Eckler. So it's not like I had to do a deep dive. You know, I'm excited to talk about him because he's a player that I've been researching all off season and I'm feeling pretty passionate about. I like to hear it. I'm, I'm a Charger fan. So this is exciting. I always like when the, the hometown guy actually has a real strong case for him. So I'm excited to hear it. So little information is out there though on what it takes to get some type of writing position or any type of fantasy football job in this industry. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about the football guys process for applying and interviewing? And what do you do each day or each week or month for them? Do you have any type of set goals with, I need to produce this many articles or how does that all work? 
Yeah, so I, I don't want to go too deeply into it, but uh, I, I talked to Joe and he said that they opened up for applications a while back and were flooded with hundreds right off the bat. And they had to turn down a lot of really good content creators because they only had room for so much. So uh, from my understanding, since then, Joe and Sigmund Bloom and the team over there, they just kind of work cohesively to find people that they think would be a good fit for the team. So for me, it was honestly a little bit shocking. You know, Joe followed me on Twitter. We connected. We had a few video calls and, uh, you know, we're just getting along really well. And then one day I just get a DM from Joe saying, hey, we want to offer you a position at Football Guys. And funny enough, my wife and I were actually at the brewery when he sent me that message. I couldn't even believe what I was reading. I had to give my phone to my <laughs> wife and I said, can you read this out loud to me? Because I think I just got a job offer from football guys, but I'm not completely sure. And, and sure enough, he did. So I'm writing some articles over there. I'm helping with some of the behind the scenes stuff regarding SEO and YouTube. And then um, hopefully during the season, I'll have some in-season live streams that I'll be doing with Troy King. That's super cool to hear. And just for everyone out there, take notes. If you want to succeed... Spend a lot of time at breweries because I think there's a strong correlation between uh, a little too much <laughs> beer at the brewery and getting your dream job. So word to the wise, you heard it from Dave. That's not even out of my mouth. That That's his story. So <laughs> I know the audience is chomping at the bit to hear us get into our DeAndre Swift and Austin Eckler interrogation, but the most powerful drug out there is the DOG. And for all of you psychology people out there, you know. Delay of gratification, the DOG. And you loyal listeners are going to have to wait a little bit longer for that. Free agency this year was eventful as always. Talk to me about which player's fantasy outlook fundamentally changed for you when evaluating their 2021 outlook pre and then post free agency. So I don't think that these were necessarily changes. Uh, but the two biggest players out there were Chris Carson and Aaron Jones. And I was dying to see where they were going to land. And with both of them returning to teams that they've already found success on, I mean, that's about as good as you can hope for. So Aaron Jones, you know, he's been top five in consecutive years. Chris Carson is consistently finishing in the top 10 in per game numbers when he's healthy. So I think they're both going to be locked in at that production. And I love to see it. But I think Kenny Galladay going to the Giants is not only great for his value, but it sends these ripple effects through the entire team. Last year, Evan Ingram led the team in targets, and that was mostly due to Saquon Barkley and Sterling Shepard not being healthy. But now with Saquon expected back, he's going to be slotted in for his normal four to five targets game. You got Sterling Shepard, who's averaged seven targets per game over his career, and Galladay should go in there and expect another you know, eight plus targets per game like he was seeing in Detroit. So I think this offense uh, revolves around those three guys. And I think Evan Ingram is the odd man out. So not only did I think the signing is great for Galladay, but I'm, you know, he's going to stay locked in as a low end wide receiver one, just like we saw in Detroit. But I think this move, uh, you know, it helps Daniel Jones tremendously. I think it's going to help Saquon Barkley get some more room in the open field. Uh, I just think the the problem here, if there has to be one person taking a hit, it's Evan Ingram. But uh, I, I love that Kenny Galladay signing. Yeah, me too. I, I think that what's nice about it is that I've done some early drafting and you can get Galladay really late because of the Daniel Jones discount. And my personal philosophy around Daniel Jones is that, yes, he was not particularly good last year. However, I'm going to give him a mulligan. He, he had Wayne Gallman in the backfield. His number two receiver was... Darius Slayton, a skinny fifth round pick who's actually just not good at football. And it turns out that he had two or three long touchdowns that inflated his value as a rookie. And then 
in 2020, we all realized, okay, this guy's a fifth round pick. He's skinny. He's not very good at football. This is not the person that you want to tell your quarterback, give this guy six to seven targets a game. That's not Darius Slayton. This is a situational field stretcher. And what's nice about the Galladay signing is that it's basically bumping everyone down the totem pole. So Shepard doesn't have to feel like he necessarily needs to be the alpha and he can operate in the slot. Like Slayton, next you know now, he's the situational deep threat instead of trying to take on what, trying to basically take on like a Kenny Galladay type role like he did last year and he didn't do it. So I'm with you. I think the Galladay signing was actually, it's a really good landing spot if you want him to see target volume. And I mean, that's all that we want from our, our number one wide receiver is passable quarterback play. But more importantly, you don't want him to be in an offense where as you're looking at who's out there thinking, all right, he's going to get 90 to 100 targets. You can realistically see him getting like 120 targets right out the gate in year one. So I'm excited to see what happens there. Yeah, for, for what they're paying him, I hope that they make him a pretty heavily targeted player because he's, he's got to earn that contract somehow. He does, Yeah. <laughs> Or else then it's going to turn into like the, who was it? It was Tyrell Williams where everyone started putting out these funny tweets where they're like, <laughs> Tyrell Williams with the Raiders made this much per reception. And it was like, mm-hmm. just like stupid. It was like 50 grand per catcher. <laughs> I probably flubbed those numbers, but it was something like that where you just do a double take. And it's like, this guy was getting an annual salary every time he touched the ball. So hopefully we don't see that situation with Galladay, but I mean, who knows? <laughs> now the, the round one wide receiver in 2020 was Michael Thomas. There were round three running backs in 2020, like Todd Gurley and James Conner. These were all landmines. From what you've seen so far in terms of early ADPs and how they're shaking out, are there any spots in these early redraft or best ball leagues where you've noticed that some parts of the draft appear to be a trap to you? Yeah, right now, uh, the guys that I am completely avoiding that are just screaming trap to me are any of the handful of tight ends after the big three. Obviously, when I say the big three, I'm talking about Travis Kelsey, George Kittle, and Darren Waller. Last year, the difference between Mark Andrews, who was the tight end four, and Dalton Schultz, who was the tight end 18, was three points per game. The gap between Kittle, the tight end three, and Andrews was even bigger than that. So it's just mind-blowing how close the margin is once you get past that that, that big three there. Uh, it's no shock that the tight end position is an absolute dumpster fire. So if you're unable to get one of those big three, I think the best bet is just to wait it out. I, I like TJ Hawkinson, and I like Mark Andrews, and I realize that they could break out, but I don't know if the odds of them breaking out any more than you know Logan Thomas, Irv Smith, Cole Komet, Janu Smith, Noah Fant. I don't know if those odds are worth the extra five to six rounds in ADP that you've got to pay up to get one of those two. I'd rather wait and grab two to three tight ends late in the draft than miss out on some of those other mid-round guys, like missing out on Chris Carson or Kenny Galladay, like we just talked about, for somebody like Mark Andrews. So if there's one spot in the draft that looks like an absolute trap to me, anything after the first three tight ends, I think you just got to wait it out and, and hope to get somebody in the late rounds. How crazy is it that we're in the information age, it's 2021, and people still just call them a tight end one, when really it's not a tight end one. It's it's like you said, there's a big three, and then there's like Mark Andrews, and then after that, it just starts to fall off a cliff, and that you've got your Hawkinson or Goddard or Fant kind of in there, Logan Thomas, where they have a better shot than some other guys potentially, but it's truly, if you're the tight end 10 on the season, what are you gaining compared, if you have that guy compared to if you had... Dalton Schultz at tight end 18. There's there's really no difference. So I like that. And, and 
and I looked at that. And uh, once you're, I, I mean, the margin between the tight end 10 and the tight end 18 was two touchdowns last year. So really what it comes down to is touchdowns, which are so fluky and so hard to predict that I think you're better off grabbing one of those late round guys and hoping they can really pop off. For me, I've, I've gotten a lot of Jarwin this year. Oh yeah. And it's because exactly what you just said is when I'm doing these, these picks in best ball and I'm in the later rounds, I just will toss a dart throw at a guy like Jarwin. And I'm like, you know what? This is a guy on an elite offense. And if he returns to form, we're looking at someone that can get eight to 12 touchdowns and blow away his ADP and end up finishing as the tight end six purely because of touchdowns. It's like what happened to Eric Ebron a few years ago where he had like 13 touchdowns. In my opinion, if anyone's going to do that, it would be like a Blake Jarwin next thing you know, just game after game, like happens to come away with a touchdown. I'm just kind of all in on those later tight ends that are in good offenses. And I'm like, you know what? We'll let the cards fall. This guy could easily get the extra, like you said, two touchdowns needed to completely beat out his ADP. Now, conversely, are there any rounds and drafts where you're just chomping at the bit? You're excited. Oh man, this round is coming up or this spot is coming up in the draft and you cannot wait to go out there. Or is there a specific draft slot where the randomizer hits and you go, oh my God, I have pick blank and this is going to be a good time. Let's crack a cold one. This will be a fun draft. Do you have anything like that to share with us? Well, I do like the top six picks in the draft and we'll get into that just a little bit later. But as far as rounds that I really do like, I'm a self-appointed wide receiver guy, but I'd say that I'm a bit softer about it than others. Uh, I, I realize that there's a huge impact in having a high usage bell cow on your team. And I try to get some of those, but I'm not punting wide receivers until the 12th round, like some of the hardcore zero wide receiver guys. I usually reach for my wide receiver one in the fifth round. And I've been getting some guys that I really, really like there this year. So last year, five of the top 10 wide receivers came in the fifth round or later guys like DK Metcalf and Stefan Diggs. And there's some guys this year that I can see following that trend. So we've already talked about Kenny Galladay, and I even mentioned Chris Godwin earlier, but there's also Deontay Johnson, CeeDee Lamb, Tyler Lockett. Those guys are all available in the fifth round, and I'm comfortable building my wide receiver core around one of those players as my wide receiver one. So that's the round that's really been jumping out for me. In those first three rounds, I try to get a few running backs, maybe a quarterback, maybe a tight end, and then I get my wide receiver one in the fifth round. I'm with you. Uh, When I was doing my early... I did like an early top 300 rankings just to kind of get the ball rolling and get my mind in the, in the kind of that, that right mindset. And one thing that I noticed was, I believe it was either 23 or 24 running backs where I was like, I am confident that if this guy is healthy, he's going to be getting 15 or more touches a game. And the offense isn't absolutely terrible. So I like this guy. And then all of a sudden there was just this cliff. And that's really when I knew that Yes, early round running back may not have been the optimal strategy in 2020, but really what was with all the injuries? I think it was it was around like Kareem Hunt era. I was like, you know what? After Kareem Hunt, who was next? It was like, do I want AJ Dillon? Do I want Damian Harris? And all of a sudden there was just this cliff. And that's when I knew that I was going right back to the well and that you really want to lock up those early running backs because there's such a cliff there. And compared to wide receiver, when, when you've hit that, okay, I'm drafting AJ Dillon or I'm taking a Damian Harris cliff. There's still so many wide receivers out there. Like you said, like Tyler Lockett, I've seen him go in like the eighth round. You're not getting any running backs in that spot. Nothing. You're going to get a middling tight end one to high end tight end two or a running back who's probably going to finish as a mid RB three and give you 10 points a game. And you're going to be pissed off about it. 
because that's the guy that ends up taking up a pretty precious slot in your starting lineup each week. I would much rather draft a guy early and hope that he stays healthy for the year than draft a guy late and hope that the guy ahead of him gets hurt. Yeah, if your whole thesis surrounding a decently early pick in the draft, like it, in the first half of the draft, if you're in round seven, round eight, and the, the starting thesis is, you know, just imagine if this guy gets hurt. Well, sure, we okay, we could play that game with literally everybody. Like, just imagine <laughs> if uh, with this bell cow back, imagine if the if the backup gets hurt. Yeah, this dude's gonna get thirty touches a game, and we're gonna be stoked. Like you can't you can't just selectively take certain players and then say, imagine if this guy gets hurt. Yeah, with Stephon Diggs, what you could have done last year is then sure you could have said like, imagine if Josh Allen is the most historical outlier. If you thought that, then you'd be taking him in round two or round three last year. So I hate all like the coulda woulda shouldas with some of the injury stuff. It just really doesn't add up in the long run. There's no profit to be had there in saying, imagine if this guy gets injured when there's another guy just sitting there who already has a path to a certain amount of clear, valuable touches a game. Give me Tyler Lockett over these gross running backs every single day of the week for 2021. Now, give me a later round running back that you could see becoming the 2021 version of a James Robinson or Mike Davis. That all-purpose skill set back where you think they can succeed if they're pressed into some type of emergency bell cow duties for an extended period. And I mean, just so the audience knows, this will not be Dave saying, here is the next James Robinson. We get it. Like the the UDFA who has a a 90% stranglehold on the touches, that doesn't happen every year. This is more who can actually take the reins and succeed in that role. So first of all, I I appreciate that disclaimer. I'm not sure if you saw my tweet the other day, but I I jokingly tweeted out, who is this year's James Robinson? And then I followed it up saying, for clarification, which undrafted rookie is going to be a free waiver wire pickup in your fantasy league that's going to pick up 1,400 scrimmage yards and 10 touchdowns to point out how silly that is. What he did. I like- missed that. That is good. Oh man, I wish I saw that one. I'm sure the comments were big. Oh yeah, there must have been some. You must have had some funny ones. Yeah, sarcasm <laughs> doesn't usually land too well on Twitter, but I am trying my best to make it the uh, the default language tone. Simply put, you know what James Robinson did last year was just incredible. Um, especially being an undrafted free agent, it, it was so much fun to see. And then Mike Davis, he obviously stumbled into his role because of injuries to Christian McCaffrey. And as somebody who saw Mike Davis play on my beloved Bears team, I was blown away with what he was able to do in that offense. Now, I already called out my love for Chris Carson a little bit earlier, but I'm going after a lot of Rashad Penny shares in drafts this year as my kind of late round flyer. Now, he's never really started a full game. He's never been declared the starter, but in opportunities where he's seen 10 plus touches, he has averaged 80.3 scrimmage yards with 0.8 touchdowns per game. Now, he's a former first round pick that has blazing speed and he's still just 25 years old. Now, Chris Carson also hasn't been the most healthy player throughout his career. So there's a chance that Penny ends up in a role where he can see a little bit of volume. And I think that he has the talent to put up RB1 numbers as a starter in that Seattle offense. There's a lot of these withering first round pick kind of guys. I still think that one of them will do something one day, whether it's, you know what, scratch that. I was going to say whether it's the the Rashad Penny or the Sony Michelle. And then as I thought about it, I was like, you know what? No, I would say there's like a 5X 
chance that Penny breaks out over Michelle. But you know, we just saw it with Ronald Jones in year three. So everybody had written him off as a bus, and then he finally put together a somewhat competent fantasy football season. So it can be done. Just think about Rojo. <laughs> Though now uh, Lombardi Lenny is back. So <laughs> we're recording this actually the day that Lenny got re-signed. So this was a blow to some of the Rojo truthers that said, oh, he was just injured during the playoffs and that's why he didn't play. The Bucks are bringing Lenny back. That was my biggest miss of the 2020 season. All offseason, like from the day that Leonard Fournette signed with the Bucks, I said, go out and get yourself Leonard Fournette. He's going to be in RB1. I had I had Leonard Fournette in 80% of my leagues last year, and he was finally able to show what he can do with the starting duties. Unfortunately, uh, it just came a little bit too late for fantasy purposes. Yeah, it was brutal. I had a good amount of Lenny too. And the, I think it was twofold. It was not just Lombardi Lenny having the most fantasy points in playoff history for a running back. It was also seeing James Robinson, an inferior talent, just going absolutely bananas in that Jacksonville offense where it's like, okay, we could totally have seen another 100 target season for Lenny there and give this guy 250 plus carries. And he would have been a top five running back there. So it's just, it was tough all around to have his his huge explosion with that Bucks offensive line happen right when it no longer mattered for all the teams that I had drafted him on. It was, it was a heartbreaker. All right, let's talk some wide receivers now. 2019 had Michael Thomas. 2020 had Devontae Adams. Do you think there's going to be a singular wide receiver that just separates completely from the pack for fantasy this next year? And if so, like, who is this guy? And then on top of that, give us an under-the-radar guy where you can see them rising up and becoming an elite fantasy asset in 2021. Kind of like what Stephon Diggs did, where everyone knew who he was. He was kind of like that wide receiver, just the token wide receiver too, where you knew he was talented enough to always get his 100 targets. And then all of a sudden, your round six pick in 2020 became an absolute league-winning wide receiver compared to what you grabbed, what you drafted him for and what he ended up becoming. So give a, give us one of each if you have it. Yeah. So Devontae Adams is my clear-cut wide receiver one for 2021. It's hard to imagine that anybody can uh, outscore him next year. I mean, the, the connection that him and Rodgers have unmatched right now in the NFL, it feels a lot like what we saw during the 2010s with Antonio Brown, where he's just that guy that you should be drafting in the first round, uh, and he's going to be a top three talent almost every single year. He led the league in targets per game last season with 10.6, and he was second behind only Michael Thomas in 2019. He was also second in 2018 behind AB. So that's three consecutive seasons of being top two in targets, something that nobody else besides Devontae Adams can say. So I say that one more time. I, I haven't heard that before. That is incredible. The past three seasons finished top two in targets for the last three seasons. I mean, that that alone makes him the wide receiver one right there. But if you want to talk about somebody else that can compete with him as the wide receiver one, I think it's got to be Tyreek Hill. He's 27 years old now and in his absolute prime. He's tied to the best quarterback in football with uh, uh, and, and really no defensive coordinator has figured out a way to stop him yet. We've seen everybody try and fail. For whatever reason, he got off to a slow start last season and he ended up sitting out week 17. But I looked at this stretch of games from weeks nine to week 16 when he went on a tear. And over that stretch, he was pacing for 185 targets, 119 receptions, almost 1,700 yards and 18 touchdowns. Now, obviously, some of that was inflated by that 269-yard, three-touchdown performance. But 
that alone, how many wide receivers can put up 269 yards and three touchdowns any given week? So I'm still going to draft Adams Overhill, but seeing him finish as the wide receiver one wouldn't shock me. I think those guys are the clear-cut runaways. But if you want to talk about a guy in the later rounds that I'm targeting, Tyler Lockett. We've already brought his name up a few times in the show, but he actually out-targeted DK Metcalf last year. And he didn't really have a great touchdown rate at the end of the season. His uh, overall value was really inflated by that huge three-touchdown game, but he's still an integral part of that offense. And with DK Metcalf getting drafted in the early second round and Tyler Lockett getting just push down draft boards because of his end of the season finish. Tyler Lockett's a guy that I think can really step up and be a low end wide receiver one. I like that. Yeah. I think what's interesting with the Lockett situation is that the whole offense in general was kind of sputtering. Russell Wilson was struggling for fantasy purposes and in real life, but you don't see Russell Wilson's ADP just completely shoveled down five rounds later than you'd expect based on his end of season finish. So it's kind of funny how that works where for some reason, the collapse of the Seahawks offense, Joe fantasy drafter out there has determined Tyler Lockett is the reason and he now sucks going forward. And I just, I don't think that has any legs to it. So I'm with you. Great guy to <laughs> grab at his current ADP because yeah, the whole offense was struggling and it's, it's just so difficult to be able to pin that on Tyler Lockett specifically. Now you don't have to spill too many beans if you don't want to, but can you at least give us a, just give us a little taste of an off-season project that you're currently researching or plan to research and write an article on sometime before the start of the 2021 season. Yeah, so I do a zero uh, running back article every single year that I just kind of fine-tune with the previous year's data. And so far it has proved to be evergreen every single year. You can plug it in and not only does the data still stick, but it actually shows that it is the way to go every single year, just making the argument for it even more so. But a lot of the writing Wait, that I do- zero running back. Yes. Uh, did I say zero running back? You said zero running back. I'm sorry. All right. I'll start over. No, it's okay. You're, <laughs> you're good. I just wanted to clarify that because people out there might be like, wait, zero every, everything back. is all right. So I do a zero wide receiver article every single year. <laughs> and what I do is I go back and just run a fine tooth comb through it, change the data with the previous year. And it's become a pretty evergreen article that almost every single year looks like it is just the way to go uh, with an even stronger argument. But a lot of the news writing that I do is pretty reactive to transactions as they come out. So uh, my job at Fantasy Pros, I've done over 2,000 news updates for them over the last years. And then the articles I've written at Football Guys have been regarding transactions. You know, Andy Dalton signing with the Bears, players getting uh, the franchise tag. And then I also have an in-season piece that I'll be doing for Fantasy Pros that I'm really excited about. It's a buy low, sell high article, but it's got a fun little twist to it. Rather than just this blanket statement that says buy this player or sell this player, it's going to be catered to your team's position. For instance, if your team is undefeated, you want to target injured players or top end tight ends and quarterbacks to give you that positional advantage. If you're in dead last, then you might want to swing for the fences and bring in some talented underperformers and sell some of your studs. So people ask me about trades nonstop during the regular season. And my response is always the same. Well, what's your record right now? I don't think that people take enough time to think about how you need to strategize how you're going to attack the trade market based on your team's position. So the article that I'll be writing for Fantasy Pros during this season is going to uh, talk specifically about that. That's awesome. I'll, I'll definitely be checking that one out. I think that's a, you just bring up a great point about how someone's record actually matters. That's something that we've been working on at Player Profiler behind the scenes with some of our dynasty rankings is we're going to be rolling out some new uh, a new metric 
to kind of help you understand some of the dynasty players that you should be targeting if you're contending versus rebuilding. Because we have all these player lifetime values on the site, but a 32-year-old wide receiver like Julio Jones, that's not really the kind of player that a rebuilding team should target. And that, yes, his lifetime value might be X, but that if you're a contending team, oh, it's a whole lot higher than that. If you're like, this is the year where I really, I want to put my chips in and make that extra push to be the number one team. First, if you're a rebuilding team, why sit on Julio Jones for a year? Especially, what if this is his final thousand yard season? And then he really just hits the, the, the cliff at age 33. So I think that's really good, the, the record part that you brought up. I think the Dynasty uh, community has a pretty good understanding of targeting different players based on your team's position, but it's something that I haven't seen many redraft players talk about. So with the majority of Fantasy Pro's audience being redraft, it's something that we're going to cater specifically to them. You know, if this is your record, go after these players. And then if you're down here, bottom of the barrel team, you know, go out, swing for the fences. I wrote an article last year, mid-season, and that's uh, why Fantasy Pros asked me to bring it onto their platform. But I was mid-season saying, hey, you know, if you're doing terrible right now, go out and get Jonathan Taylor. You know, he's got talent. He's on a good team. He's been really underperforming. And the people that were sitting at, you know, three and six at the time picked up Jonathan Taylor, and he ended up getting them into the playoffs. So you, you really need to strategize differently based on how your team is doing. That's a huge win for you. So I, while I was... While I was uh, I as well was saying, get on the Jonathan Taylor train. This is the time to do it. His value will never be lower. I wouldn't say this is a swing and a miss because he hit, but I was saying the same thing with Cam Akers. And let me tell you, it was so frustrating that it was, what was it? It was week 14 when we finally got a glimpse of how good Bell Cow Akers could be. But meanwhile, <laughs> here I am like pounding the drum for Bell Cow Akers in like week six and week seven, not realizing I'm a month and a half early to the party. And that I just look like a donkey the whole time as he keeps getting just completely disrespected in that three-way timeshare with Malcolm Brown and Darrell Henderson. So that that one didn't hit quite as well. The Jonathan Taylor one, props to you. I'm sure everyone out there was winning some nice money that somehow righted the ship on those teams. And, and it goes both ways. I was uh, talking to Michael Florio earlier today. And he was making a joke that all offseason, he was pumping up Marquise Brown, saying, go out, do whatever you can to buy Marquise Brown. And then finally, around week 10 or week 11, he threw in the towel and said, everything I said about Marquise oh, Brown, no. I'm backing off on, sell your Mar- Marquise Brown shares. And then he ended up blowing up down the stretch. So he got he got double doinked by Marquise Brown. That's, that's the game we play. No matter how much research we do, at the end of the day, this is a contact sport. There's 22, 200 plus pound men out on the field sprinting full speed at each other there's just parts of it that we will probably never quite understand all right i'm looking at the show sheets we've got eight more questions and then we're going to get into this eckler swift debate just kidding (laughs) so the way that this next part is going to work (laughs) gotta compose myself i didn't think it was gonna be that funny but i'm just i'm picturing the audience listening in like eight more questions this is good. How long is this episode? Oh, man. So the way that this next part's going to work, Dave's going to be defending Austin Eckler, and I'll be defending DeAndre Swift. We're going to go back and forth, bringing up common arguments that people are giving as to why they're concerned about each guy's 2021 outlook. I'm currently higher than consensus on Swift, and I'll be defending him from all of Dave's personal vicious 
and just downright rude attacks. And I know Dave is currently higher than consensus on Eckler, so he'll be defending him from all of my well-thought-out and incredibly perceptive observations. (laughs) In all seriousness, this whole episode, it's a collaboration and required more effort from Dave than the typical guest appearance, and for that, I'm very appreciative. Dave and I, we, we talked about doing this podcast like six weeks ago. I kind of sprang the potential running back interrogation format onto him maybe two weeks ago. And this is just a completely new format that I haven't really heard any other podcasts attempt. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun for the audience, as well as a nice change of pace for both of us compared to some of the, the more common podcast guest spots. Now, before we get into trading questions and defending our guys, why don't you take a minute, just give us a quick high-level background description on Austin Eckler for everyone out there. Absolutely. And and first of all, thanks again for having me on. We definitely put some work into this, but I think it's such a fun concept and I am, I am ready for this. Simply put, the only thing that's been holding Austin Eckler back from being an absolute beast is his opportunity. He's played in 56 games since being drafted, but he's only started in 21. Over those 21 starts, he's averaging 98.1 scrimmage yards per game with 5.5 receptions and 0.57 touchdowns per game. Now he heads into his year 25 season, tied to one of the best young quarterbacks in the game with a new head coach from Sean McVay's coaching tree. Since the start of 2019, Eckler is averaging 20.3 fantasy points per start in PPR leagues. That's good for being the RB3 in per game numbers. Now, a lot of people have pigeonholed him into being a pass-catching back and nothing more, but he's also shockingly good between the tackles. He doesn't shy away from contact, and he's averaging 4.7 yards per carry over his career. Go ahead, poke some holes in that argument, Josh. (laughs) We'll we'll get to that shortly. (laughs) So just a little background on DeAndre Swift. DeAndre Swift has been an elite running back prospect since high school. As a true freshman at Georgia, he managed nearly 800 scrimmage yards while sharing a backfield with two seniors in Nick Chubb and Sony Michelle. That freshman season, Swift even had more receptions than Chubb and Michelle combined. His sophomore and junior years, he topped 1,000 yards on the ground, as well as over 200 receiving yards both of those seasons. He was never a workhorse at Georgia, and his high watermark was 196 carries as a junior, However, he was always incredibly efficient with his touches. He was taken 35th overall, early second round, by the Detroit Lions. And then as a 21-year-old rookie in 2020, he averaged 9 rushing attempts for 40 yards a game and and 3.5 receptions for 27 receiving yards per game across 13 games. And he also finished with quite a large total of 10 touchdowns. Alright, now it's time to let the interrogation begin. And I don't think Dave's done his research because I don't think he's heard this, but the guy he's defending, Austin Eckler, is only around 5'9", 200 pounds. That is incredibly undersized for an NFL running back. He also has an injury history with the severe hamstring strain from last year that kept him out of six games. He also dealt with multiple head and neck injuries in 2018, and those forced him to miss two games. Are you sure he can handle a large enough workload in 2021 that will allow him to finish as an RB1? Well, sometimes you've just got to defer to the professionals. And I talked with my good friend, Adam Hutchison, a while back. I feel like it would be remiss not to give him a shout out. The real Adam underscore H on Twitter. He's great at what he does. But I talked to him last offseason. 
And he really dispelled the myth of injury prone to me. So Adam is a doctor in physical therapy, and he explained that there are quite a few reasons for this myth of being injury prone. The biggest predictor of future injuries is previous injury history. But as everyone knows, correlation does not infer causation. Something can be treated. Mechanics can be altered to correct what may have been a foundation of that injury. And finally, injuries are just the nature of a physical game. These guys play. You called it out earlier. You've got 22 guys that are over 200 pounds sprinting across the field. And sometimes it's just a case of bad luck. So because Eckler got hurt, doesn't mean they can't be resolved, and it doesn't mean it won't happen exactly the way it did. Last year, I was fading Dalvin Cook in the offseason, and I said it was because he was injury-prone, and Adam convinced me not to. He laid out this entire argument for me, and I listened to him, and sure enough, I ended up with a few shares of Dalvin Cook, and it worked out pretty well for me last year. So I'm no longer fading injury play- or I'm no longer fading players just based off of their injury history. But let's go back to DeAndre Swift here because we were talking about him a little bit. Simply put, DeAndre Swift is on a terrible team. The Detroit Lions are moving on from Matt Stafford to Jared Goff, and they currently have the worst Super Bowl odds of any team in the NFL. On top of that, Kenny Galladay is gone. Marvin Jones is gone. It's going to be really tough for DeAndre Swift to finish as an RB1 or even a mid to high RB2 if if that offense isn't scoring touchdowns. So any thoughts about his outlook in that regard, Josh? Well, thanks for asking, Dave. So depending on the site, DeAndre Swift is ranked and or getting drafted somewhere in that RB10 to RB17 range. And to hit value there, he needs around 215 to 230 fantasy points if we look at running backs in that range from the past three seasons. So we've established our benchmark fantasy points range of low 200s. Now, if we look at total team offensive touchdowns, the New York Giants and New York Jets both had 25 Total offensive touchdowns, tied for last in the entire NFL. Next worst last year were the Bengals. Very interesting, actually. I feel like Randy Bullock, Bullock, however you pronounce his name, the kicker for the Bengals was an absolute stud if you played with kickers last year because for some reason, the Bengals had an effective offense, but they just couldn't quite score the touchdowns. So the Giants and Jets, 25 touchdowns of offense last year. Next worst were the Bengals and Patriots with 32 total offensive touchdowns each. For the sake of simplicity, let's say that a bad offense scores 30 touchdowns. Nice whole number, and that would have been the third worst offense of 2020. Let's say Swift is on that offense. If we look at all running backs that finished top 20 overall in fantasy points for each year, the past 10 years, we have 200 running backs. The top 20 from each year, the past 10 years. 34 of these running backs were on teams with 30 or fewer total offensive touchdowns as a team. So now we have this sample, 34 out of 200. So roughly one in six of these top 20 running backs the past 10 years actually played on dreadful offenses. And initially, that does not sound like great odds, one in six. However, if we look at the actual stat lines these running backs put up, it's well within reason for Swift to match or exceed the important benchmarks. As a rookie, Swift had 46 receptions, and that was with Galladay and Marvin Jones, both of whom are gone. Safe to say, we can assume he's getting at least 46 receptions in 2021, right? Now get this, two-thirds of the running backs on bad teams that still finished top 20 at the position, two-thirds of them had under 46 catches, fewer than Swift had in only 13 games as a rookie. And overall, these 34 running backs 
that were finishing as top 20 options on anemic scoring offenses averaged 217 fantasy points, 43 catches, 331 receiving yards, and under 7 total touchdowns. Sure, the average running back in this sample had 240 rush attempts. I don't think Swift is going to reach that number. However, Swift should greatly exceed the 43 catches and 331 receiving yards that this sample had on average. And I have no concern about the quality of the offense holding Swift back because of the wide open receiving depth chart and path to massive volume there. For those listening at home, grab a pen and paper and you can follow along to check my math. Let's just say Swift has only 175 carries. So just over 10 per game, that's not very many at all. And if he averages 4.5 yards per carry, roughly average, that is 788 rush yards. We're going to give him 5 rushing touchdowns. Again, not very many. We'll just give him 5. And now, in 2020, Swift averaged 3.5 receptions per game in the face of much stiffer competition for targets in a Galladay, a Marvin Jones. Newsflash, the 2021 Detroit wide receiver depth chart, it's Brashad Perriman, it's Tyrell Williams, and... I don't even know how to say this guy's name. Is it Cyphus, Cephas, Quintez C? We'll call him Quintez C. That's a wide open depth chart. But you know what? Let's just assume Swift doesn't even increase his per game pace and that he just only gets three and a half receptions per game. And we'll give him eight yards per reception, just like 2020. I'm also going to say he has two receiving touchdowns. We'll give him a couple. That is not a lot. And this puts him at only seven total touchdowns. Now, I am just lowballing the shit out of Swift. <laughs> with these projections and i've produced what seems like a mediocre stat line of 175 rushes 788 rush yards five touchdowns on the ground and then this would amount to 56 receptions three and a half per game 56 catches 448 yards two touchdowns that very average sounding line overall with his rushing and receiving would amount to 222 fantasy points boom and that's with only seven total touchdowns which is right in line with the 6.7 that those bad running backs hitting top 20 had averaged. So he's right around that that right around that average touchdown benchmark that I already laid out. 222 fantasy points, that's him hitting ADP already. And I see no Swift related issues with the Detroit offense being unwatchable and low scoring because Swift has the receiving chops that he displayed as a rookie. The kid is PPR gold. Now, back to Eckler. 2 years ago, He was splitting work with Melvin Gordon once Gordon returned from a contract dispute that I think we can all agree really backfired on Melvin Gordon. And when Melvin Gordon returned, Eckler's fantasy value did take a hit upon that return. Last year, Kalen Balaj was a bit of a thorn in the side of Eckler's workload. In 2021, it could be another veteran running back like Balaj siphoning touches or the progression of the fourth round rookie Josh Kelly from last year who has the much more traditional feature back size compared to Eckler. Are you worried at all about his usage and what's his workload going to look like for next season? Well, there's this website that I really, really enjoy for just quick high level player overviews. I'm not sure if you've heard of it or not. Player profiler. They do a fantastic job. I never heard of them. Anyway, (laughs) the biggest thing that jumps out to me there is that Austin Eckler's burst score ranks in the 95th percentile, and he's in the top 80% in both his 40 time and his agility score. Now, similar to what you were saying about DeAndre Swift, that doesn't even account for the pass catching upside that you get with somebody like Austin Eckler. Anthony Lynn 
the the coach from last year is a very old school coach that was trying his best to find that north south runner and i think that's why we saw Kalen Bellage getting the carries that he got <laughs> now we've got Brandon Staley who has been a defensive coach up until this point so i don't know exactly what to expect with his running back utilization but what i do know is that talent typically wins out and Eckler is one of the most talented backs in the league and surely the most talented on this team. At this point in free agency, the running back market is pretty dried up. You've got James Conner, Le'Veon Bell, Adrian Peterson, some veterans that could come in there and certainly damper Eckler's value a bit. But right now, the competition is coming down to Justin Jackson and Kalen Balaj. That was the same competition that Eckler had last year, and he still saw the 18th highest snap share in the league. So just about Every single efficiency metric that you can look at, whether it's yards per carry, juke rate, yards created, expected points added, Eckler is the best out of the bunch. So the red zone touches scare me just a little bit, but I think that Eckler is going to be the bell cow in this offense, and his versatility makes it unlikely that he gets scripted out of any games. If they're down, he's going to be getting the pass catching work, and if they're up, I expect them to continue running the ball. I like that. The 18th highest snap share surprised me. I didn't even realize he was on the field that much. Now, I I think I know what your rebuttal is going to be on this one. And I've been called a helmet scout for this take in the past, but I am really, really struggling to shake this. Let me start this off by saying that prior to the NFL draft, DeAndre Swift was my number one running back. But as soon as the Lions selected him, I started to fade in. Kerryon Johnson, Amir Abdullah, Mikel LaShore, Javid Best, Kevin Jones. Those names might be causing PTSD for some of the listeners out here. That's a list of running backs that the Lions have selected in the first two rounds since 2004. I don't need to go through every one of them one by one, but they have all failed miserably in the NFL. So some have been health related and some have just been pure bust. I don't know if it's the Detroit Lions scouting. I don't know if it's their medical staff. I don't know if it's ownership. It could be the turf in the stadium in Detroit. It could be the fans. It might be that the owner is giving free Little Caesars pizza to everybody and it's slowing down their top prospects. I don't know what it is, but I've been on hype trains for a lot of the Lions running backs over the years, and I just can't emotionally invest myself in DeAndre Swift again for this reason. So a lot of these guys had better draft capital and were taken higher than DeAndre Swift. So what makes you think that DeAndre Swift can break this just curse of awful running backs that have run through Detroit over the last 10 years? All right, let's let's break down how we're going to break this curse. So it's always important to look at the individual talents themselves. And we all know that Swift had the incredible prospect profile. Like you said, he was your number one running back pre-draft. So what I'm going to do is quickly flick these guys away one by one based on their prospect profile or rookie year production or injuries, which we'll get to in a second. So we'll start with Amir Abdullah, pretty much a scat back. This guy's 200 pounds and he wasn't even a productive receiving back his rookie season, he had less than half as many receptions per game as Swift did as a rookie. So we're already talking about scat back size, zero in the passing game compared to what you need from a tiny 200 pound running back. Give me Swift. Next, Mikel LaShore. All he did was tear his Achilles during training camp before his rookie year even started. Then he was suspended for part of the next season because in rehabbing his Achilles, he took banned substances. That's just bad news. I think we can just chalk that one up to a freak injury with the Achilles early on and then the guy just completely derailing his career with substances. Kevin Jones was actually fine. He had 195 fantasy points as a rookie and he had 230 fantasy points in year three. 
finishing as the RB12 on the season despite missing four games. During Kevin Jones' injury-riddled four seasons with the Lions, he still averaged over 13 fantasy points per game. So again, I think he was fine. That's not even a horrible scenario where the guy's getting 13 fantasy points per game. His was more of a case of random nagging injuries in a shorter career than most hoped for, but the actual underlying talent seemed like it, it was probably there with him. Carryon Johnson is objectively terrible, and he's been playing with a massive knee brace since age 22. Do I expect Swift to be sporting a permanent knee brace starting this year like Carryon Johnson did as a 22-year-old? Absolutely not. Next. Finally, this is the toughest one. Javid Best was electric and he was highly productive as a rookie, just like Swift. Unfortunately, his career was immediately derailed by head injuries and he retired after only 22 career games. If anything, Swift's head injury as a rookie where he missed three games offers some type of parallel to Javid Best. But again, 22 career games in the NFL due to head injuries is the 1% type of outcome, historically. So, Luckily for Swift's head and neck area, I would not expect him statistically to follow in Best's footsteps. Now, turning it back to you. The Chargers defense, they came into 2020 looking like it was going to be a powerhouse. I would know. Huge fan over here. I could not wait for that unit. And then of course, before the season begins, the push notification comes in on the phone. Young sensation Derwin James ruled out for the entire year with a knee injury sustained in training camp. Bosa missed four games with multiple concussions, and overall a promising Chargers defense was largely ineffective, and this created a lot of catch-up opportunities for the Justin Herbert-led offense to pepper Eckler with targets while in comeback mode. The Chargers defense, at least on paper, should be a top 10, probably even a top 5 unit, and there will likely be fewer negative game scripts where Eckler can rack up the receiving work. Does his potential decrease in targets per game concern you heading into 2021? Well, first of all, let me say from the bottom of my heart that I am deeply sorry for what you had to go through as a Chargers fan last year. That was a <laughs> offseason that will not be forgotten by many Chargers fans. Just an absolute bloodbath. But back to Austin Eckler. I have spent a lot of time trying to dispel the idea that Eckler is just a pass catching back. I think that comes from early on in his season when he kind of took on the Danny Woodhead role, who was just a pass catching back. But the biggest things that jump out to me are that last year, Austin Eckler saw more defenders in the box than any other running backs on the Chargers, showing that defenses are prepared for him to run the ball. He also led the team in yards per carry last season, and it wasn't just last season either. Like I mentioned earlier, he's got a career 4.7 yards per rush. Obviously, this is a very different team with Justin Herbert under center than it was with Phillip Rivers. But when you look at those first four games in 2019, when Eckler went on that absolute tear, the Chargers were 2-2, two and two, so it's not like they were playing catch-up in all these games. And Eckler averaged 14 carries per game over that stretch. That comes out to 224 carries a year, which is well above the 200-carry benchmark that I aim for with backs. I talked about this a bit when refuting the question about his usage, but I think his versatility makes him completely game script proof. Whether they're up or down, I think Eckler is going to be getting his next year. A lot is made about Eckler's height. You know, I've, I've seen anywhere from 5'9 to 5'10. In 2020, the average starting running back was 5'11 and 1 inch. I'm sorry, 5'11.1 inches. 
So I believe that his strength and burst are enough to offset that extra inch that he's missing missing from the average back. Oh my God, 5'11". Point that's so many ones. Five foot. It was hard. It was hard to say. I don't know how it you was even really say hard that. to say. Yeah, five. Foot, five foot eleven point one inches. Five one one point one. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's one other thing that really worries me about DeAndre Swift, and it is the Jamal Williams signing. Obviously, I'm not going to try to say that you know Jamal Williams is better than DeAndre Swift. Swift is clearly the more talented of the two backs, but they have very very similar skill sets and I'm worried that this is going to be more of a timeshare than people imagine it. Both backs are great pass catchers and they can do damage in the open space. We already talked about the Lions history of running backs that have flamed out due to injury. So don't you think the front office would have talked about that somewhat? And if so, is it a stretch of the imagination to think that they want to bring in Williams to help dispel some of DeAndre Swift's workload just a little bit? He's a great talent, and I just can't see them giving their young stud 250-plus touches a season when they're not even going to be competing for a playoff spot this year. Dave, I completely agree. It would be foolish to give Swift too many touches per game when the team is not in playoff contention. In my theoretical Swift stat line above, where he gets to 222 fantasy points, which would have been RB10 in 2020, that was on just over 14 touches per game. Now with Jamal Williams, all of his NFL playing time, for the most part, has been side-by-side with Aaron Jones. And if we look at the games that Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams played together the past two years, Jamal averaged under 10 touches per game, seven rush attempts, just over two catches per game. Jamal Williams is a day three pick out of BYU in a 26-year-old career backup who signed a two-year deal with only $3 million guaranteed. A career backup getting signed to a backup running back level contract. He's never been trusted to handle a heavy workload over a full season, and I have no indication to expect this season to be any different. Swift is four years younger, has the draft capital, excelled as a rookie, has continuity with the team, while Williams is joining the team as a free agent, and Swift is significantly more athletic. Last year, only four NFL teams gave their running back room fewer than 350 total touches. If we assume Jamal gets his nine touches per game like he did in Green Bay the past two years, and the Lions have an absolute bottom-of-the-barrel running back touch allotment at only 350 touches, That would still leave around 13 per game for Swift. Before, I projected him around 14 touches when he hit his 222 fantasy points. Now, I fully expect the Lions to have an above-average fantasy points per touch due to those negative game scripts and ample passing opportunities. Plus, with the atrocious wide receiver depth chart in Detroit, that leaves more work for the running back tandem of DeAndre Swift and Jamal Williams. Will a healthy Jamal Williams likely prevent Swift From high-end RB1 numbers? Probably. But that's the case with practically every running back in the NFL, not named McCaffrey, Saquon, Derrick Henry, or Dalvin Cook. We've even seen Alvin Kamara and Aaron Jones put up elite numbers without elite volume, due to pass catching. Swift's 46 rookie receptions was a 97th percentile total for a rookie running back since 2000, and he still missed three games. The only player that should be concerned about the Jamal Williams signing is Carrion Johnson, who is going to have to scrape and crawl to see any 2021 action at this point. 
And remember, this is a guy that's been in a knee brace for the past year and a half, and he's still not even 24 yet. So Carrion Johnson can be concerned about the Jamal Williams signing. Now, it's very early in our whole process. We're recording this episode on March 26th. The NFL season starts in, what, five months and some change. We're early, but we're now going to reveal exactly where we have each guy ranked and who the guys ahead of him are. But remember, it's still March. A lot can change, but we're confident in our intuition and early research. Dave, where do you have Austin Eckler for 2021 redraft? And who are the guys ahead of him? And if there's anyone that you want to say like, oh, this is a controversial take. This is why I have Eckler ahead of him. Go ahead. Defend your guy. Well, well, first of all, I, I named out a few free agent running backs that could really, really throw a wrench in this. Um, Adrian Peterson. I feel like that's all he's doing at this point in his career is capping the upside <laughs> of players that I like. And he could certainly end up there and do that. You know, even Le'Veon Bell with his skill set, he can come in and really cap the upside. But right now, given where the depth chart is, I've got Austin Eckler as my RB6 in PPR formats. The guys I have ahead of him, it's a very short list. Ezekiel Elliott... Saquon Barkley, Alvin Kamara, Dalvin Cook, Christian McCaffrey. That's my top five. And then Austin Eckler. So his ranking is probably the spiciest of all of my rankings right now. He's typically (laughs) sitting as a low-end RB1 by most people, but that's why I want to discuss it on this show. So given, you know, Derrick Henry's age, the loss of Arthur Smith, Jonathan Taylor even. I I love watching him play, but he had a pretty up-and-down season, and we've got Marlon Mack coming back next year. You've got Nick Chubb in a timeshare with Kareem Hunt. It really, really makes it tough for me to put any of those guys ahead of Eckler. And I would be fully confident drafting him as the sixth receiver off. Sorry, the sixth running back off the board right now. I like it. I like it. I was going to ask you the same question. So, Josh, why don't you tell me where you have DeAndre Swift now heading into the 2021 redraft season and which running backs you have ranked ahead of him? DeAndre Swift is currently my running back 11 for 2021. While he's ranked as the RB17 right now on Fantasy Pros, which gives us kind of a good gauge of the general consensus opinion on him. The guys that I have ranked above Swift are McCaffrey, Dalvin Cook, Saquon, Derrick Henry, Alvin Kamara, Jonathan Taylor, Cam Akers, Austin Eckler, and Aaron Jones. A name you did not hear, you did not hear Nick Chubb. And I'll offer more thoughts on why I currently have Swift over Nick Chubb another time, just to make sure that I tease the audience. D-O-G. However, I will- Come back next week. (laughs) Yes. Delay of gratification. Yuck. (laughs) Come back next year when Dave and I record a March 26th podcast in 2022, and you'll find out why I preferred Swift over Chubb at this stage of the game in 2021. Now, I, I will say that another guy that's neck and neck with Swift is Antonio Gibson for me. I think there's a lot of parallels between how they could be used for the next season and how elite they are at so many different parts of the game that we look for and covet in these young running backs. But being that I did an hour-long podcast on Antonio Gibson a few weeks ago, this was DeAndre Swift's time to shine. Now, that Antonio Gibson podcast, was that before or after the Curtis Samuel signing? That was before. So, I will not, I will not uh, say that the Curtis Samuel signing is necessarily helping Gibson. However, there's enough touches to go around. I think one thing that people often don't understand is how many actual plays are run by these teams and how many touches are up for grabs. And that just like in general, 
Uh, I mentioned it before, but like the average running back room is getting like 420 touches. And I feel like people don't realize that. They think that there's like 300 touches up for grabs, but really like the bottom of the barrel teams when it comes to running back usage still have 350 or more touches being dedicated to the running backs. So I think, well, yes, Curtis Samuel's signing, obviously more and more playmakers aren't necessarily going to be helping Gibson. I think having him get a Ryan Fitzpatrick and knowing that he's going to have at least a decently competent quarterback, more so than what he had last year, all else being equal, I haven't downgraded his overall situation since recording that podcast pre-Fitzpatrick and pre-Curtis Samuel. All right, Dave, this was awesome. Thanks for your time. I'm sure all the listeners out there are going to really enjoy this new format. And if for some reason they don't and they hate running back interrogations, well, that's too bad because I think this format might be here to stay. Now, do you have any closing thoughts? Want to plug a Twitter account, any other shows? Give that to everyone one more time. Yeah, thanks again for having me. This was fun. I really enjoyed this format. And and I think this is uh, something that I could definitely see myself tuning into every week if you continue to develop it with other people. Look forward to see where you go with this. But yes, you can find me on Twitter at Dave Kluge underscore FF. That's D-A-V-E-K-L-U-G-E underscore FF. You can also find me at Football Guys writing long form articles. You can find me on Fantasy Pros doing their news updates. And you can find me live every Friday doing a different type of show where rather than diving deep into numbers, we're just getting to know some of the bigger names in the fantasy community. It's been a lot of fun. You were afraid I'd make you wait, huh? DeAndre Swift over Nick Chubb in 2021 may initially sound like a hot take. Hey, Josh, you do know that Nick Chubb had over 17 fantasy points per game in 2020. Sixth out of all running backs. And to that, I'll respond, do you know how often it is that a running back has 12 rushing touchdowns on fewer than 200 carries? Not very often. In fact, Nick Chubb is one of only six running backs the past 21 years to have under 200 rush attempts, yet 12 or more rushing touchdowns. Safe to say, the guy ran incredibly pure in the touchdown department in 2020, and that's unlikely to happen again in 2021. Chubb had 21 carries within 10 yards of the end zone, and 12 carries out of those 21 were within 5 yards of the end zone. The Browns had the best run-blocking unit in the NFL in 2020. And while I expect them to be good once again in 2021, I am not betting on a true outlier season from both the O-line and from Nick Chubb. Playing in one more game than Chubb did in 2020, Swift had three times the amount of receptions. Additionally, Swift had nearly the same amount of carries as Chubb from within 10 yards of the goal line and from within five yards of the goal line. Chubb had 21 carries within 10 yards of the end zone, and 12 of those 21 were within 5 yards. 21 and 12. Swift had 17 carries within 10 yards of the end zone, and 11 carries within 5 yards of the end zone. Again, 21 and 12 for Chubb, 17 and 11 for Swift. Nearly identical. With Swift, you're getting similar goal line work and several times more receptions. What we have here 
This is a case of Nick Chubb getting overdrafted and his 2021 perception being clouded by insane touchdown efficiency the year prior. Receptions in the red zone? Tack on three of those for Chubb and nine of those for DeAndre Swift. Receptions generally go for more yards than goal line carries. Hence why I'm using within 10 yards for rushing attempts, but within 20 yards for receptions. Just counting those two events, red zone receptions, and carries within 10 yards of the end zone, Nick Chubb had 24 of them in 2020. DeAndre Swift had 26. If this is uncomfortable for you to hear as a Nick Chubb owner in Dynasty or 2021 Best Ball Leagues, good, and you're welcome. Oh, their backfield counterparts? You better not try to convince me that Jamal Williams is more talented than Kareem Hunt. Last year, the difference between Mark Andrews, who was the tight end four, and Dalton Schultz, who was the tight end 18, was three points per game. The gap between Kittle, the tight end three, and Andrews was even bigger than that. And just for everyone out there, take notes. If you want to succeed, spend a lot of time at breweries because I think there's a strong correlation between uh, a little too much beer at the brewery and getting your dream job. We can all think of that dynasty league where there is one true bottom feeder. Uh, last year, five of the top 10 wide receivers came in the fifth round or later. Uh, guys like DK Metcalf and Stefan Diggs. Oh, I just realized I'm, I'm going for fifth round, not fourth round here. So we'll we'll, we'll cut this. I'll, I'll start over again if you, if you don't mind cutting that part out. Or is there a specific draft slot where the randomizer hits and you go, oh my God, I have pick blank. And this is going to be a good time. Let's crack a cold one. This will be a fun draft. If you're doing terrible right now, go out and get Jonathan Taylor. You know, he's got talent. He's on a good team. He's been really underperforming. And the people that were sitting at, you know, three and six at the time picked up Jonathan Taylor and he ended up getting them into the playoff. Hey, Josh, you do know that Nick Chubb had over 17 fantasy points per game in 2020. For some reason, the collapse of the Seahawks offense, Joe Fantasy Drafter out there has determined Tyler Lockett is the reason, and he now sucks going forward. He led the league in targets per game last season with 10.6, and he was second behind only Michael Thomas in 2019. He was also second in 2018 behind AB, so that's three consecutive seasons of being top two in targets, something that nobody else besides Devontae Adams can say. Now, I am just lowballing the shit out of Swift with these projections. Here I am, like, pounding the drum for Bell Cow Acres. Eight more questions? This is good. How long is this episode? Yeah, you got double doinked by Marquise Brown. Yeah, you got double doinked by Marquise Brown. That freshman season, Swift even had more receptions than Chubb and Michelle combined. 
since the start of 2019, Eckler is averaging 20.3 fantasy points per start in PPR leagues. That's good for being the RB3 in per game numbers. For those listening at home, grab a pen and paper and you can follow along to check my math. Last year, Austin Eckler saw more defenders in the box than any other running backs on the Chargers. Remember, this is a guy that's been in a knee brace for the past year and a half, and he's still not even 24 yet. So his ranking is probably the spiciest of all of my rankings right now. Come back next year when Dave and I record a March 26th podcast in 2022, and you'll find out why I preferred Swift over Chubb at this stage of the game in 2021.